0: Would you please follow with me as I read chapter 64, verses 1 through 3. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence when you did awesome things that we did not look for you came down the mountains quaked at your presence this is God's Word now Isaiah 64 verse 1 is as good a description of revival as we'll ever find anywhere. God comes down to us. Now obviously that language is figurative because with God there is no up and down. Uh, He's beyond that. But figures of speech in the Bible do not say nothing. They always refer to some literal reality indirectly by, by the use of imagery. So what is the literal reality standing behind this language in Isaiah 64 verse 1? The literal reality is the felt presence of God. Three times in verses 1 through 3, Isaiah says, At your presence. And why do I say God's felt presence? Because as Isaiah says, when God comes down the mountains quake. God's presence is like a fire burning brushwood or a fire causing water to boil. And then Isaiah says, in effect, second half of verse two, what he's saying really is what I'm talking about is God making his name known to his adversaries so that the nations tremble before him. He's talking about the intervention of God here in our world. He's talking about God manifesting Himself, making His presence powerfully felt to shake this world up and transform enemies into worshipers. That is the descent of God on the world today. But Isaiah isn't just talking about this. He's longing for it the most important word in the whole passage is the first word in verse one the word oh that's how he's praying this is a biblical prayer and the most important punctuation mark in the whole passage is the exclamation point at the end of that sentence that chapter sixty four begins with isaiah is not Theorizing, he is not daydreaming, he is praying. His heart is gripped by a cause greater than himself. He is crying out to God for outward gospel expansion and deeper gospel impact because he knows that there's no greater joy for him than the descent of God in his time. And Isaiah is teaching us how to pray. We don't learn to pray by listening to one another. We learn to pray from reading the Bible. God wants us to pray with boldness and with passion and with vision for the growth and expansion and influence and joy of His kingdom in our time. Isn't that what the Lord's Prayer emphasizes? Our Father who, who art in heaven and so forth. Before we are invited, we are invited to pray for our daily bread. But before that, we're called to pray that God's kingdom would come. Now, the beautiful thing is that we know from Scripture is that... Um, God invites us to pray about everything. All our personal problems. It says in Philippians chapter 4, we can make a request known to Him about everything. God wants to hear all about the smallest problem in your life. That's who He is. But how can we overlook the main thing God calls us to pray for? For the power and glory and joy of his kingdom today so when in our small groups for example when we're passing around prayer requests what do we ask for first are we praying with God's priorities do we understand here's the wonderful thing do we understand that all our happiness lies first and foremost And the prosperity and the growth and the the kingdom of God surging forward before our very eyes. And we get to be a part of it in our generation. Are we longing for the descent of God upon us at Christ Presbyterian Church? What could be greater for you, for me, for our families, for Nashville? What could be greater? When you and I are old people sitting in a rocking chair, rocking chairs someday, looking back, savoring the memories, well, I can't think of a greater memory to relish and thank God for than when I got to be in Nashville, Tennessee in the first decade and the second decade of the 21st century when God came down. Now as you can see in the outline in the structure of the text, Isaiah is not so much arguing a case in logical sequence. He's just too deeply moved for that. His thoughts are a freely interwoven mixture of highs and lows. He goes from longing to lamentation, to longing to lamentation, to longing and then to a final appeal. And the takeaway that God has for us here is a passion. Oh, oh. A passion for His glory to be unrestrained coming down upon us in our experience in new and wonderful ways let's look at it chapter 63 verse 15 look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation where are your zeal and your might the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me now there is a clue in this verse to the message of the whole text you see the words are held back You see those words or if you're looking at another translation the equivalent there's a the Hebrew word standing behind those English words are held back that Hebrew word reappears in the last verse of the passage where it's translated restrain yourself are held back restrain yourself It's like bookends around the whole passage this prayer begins With Isaiah agonizing over the way God is withholding His compassion from His people. And it ends with Isaiah asking God to stop restraining His love and power. The whole prayer is for God to visit us without restraint. Without holding Himself back at all. For His fullness to be poured out. So... As Isaiah looks at God, there is God in his holy and beautiful habitation, his heavenly palace, as it were. There is God, our God. Here we are in our mediocrity. What's the answer? Not more of us, but more of God. Look how Isaiah describes God the stirring of your inner parts the stirring of your inner parts. What does that mean? Does God have inner parts? Not literally, but God does have deep feelings of affection for us. The, the New International Version is a wonderful translation, but they sort of they obscured this. That more literally, the, the stirring of your inner parts. The Jerusalem Bible translates this, the yearning of your inmost heart, literally, the turmoil of your inner being. What God feels for us, He feels deeply. Not superficially or sporadically, but sometimes God withholds from us the experience, our experience of His deep love, and other times... He pours out an experience of His deep love. God is committed to us. The work of Christ on the cross is finished. The Holy Spirit has been given. The triune God never changes. But our experience of Him does change. We live in constant undulation, as it were. It's the nature of our condition. There is a difference, for example, between doing church in our own power and entering into the presence of God did you know you can pray about that did you know God wants you to pray about that this is a good prayer this is inspired by the Holy Spirit when Isaiah is asking God questions here he's not attacking God he's not criticizing God he's not doubting God he is asking God where are your passion and your power where are your zeal and your might being demonstrated in our experience in our time The love that you do have for us so deeply that surges within your being. You're withholding from us its fullness and power. Look down from heaven and smile on us again. Verse 16. For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father our Redeemer from of old is your name. Now, what is he saying? He's saying that if the great patriarchs, Abraham and Israel, way back in the book of Genesis, if they could get into it, now this is being written in the 8th century B.C., being written for people in the 6th century B.C. If the patriarchs, could get into a time machine in their historical location, hit the fast-forward button, and reappear here among the people of God at this time, probably uh, when they had returned to the Promised Land after the Babylonian exile. The patriarch, stepping out of the time machine, looking around at the people of God, would look at them and say, Who are you? They've drifted. The people of God have become less than they used to be. They need renewal. We all need renewal. Every generation needs to rediscover afresh for itself, in its own categories, in its own ways of thought, in its own wording, in its own experience, what Christ is worth and what it means to live flat out for Him if the reformers today were a Presbyterian church, if the reformers today were to, were, were to appear today out of the uh, 16th century and, and tour the Presbyterian churches of our nation would they identify with us? or would they look at us in bewilderment? well what do we need? not the patriarchs not the reformers They're all dead. But God is our Father. And our Redeemer from of old is His name. However far we've drifted, He still identifies with us. And He still loves us with turmoil in His being. He loves us more than the patriarchs or the reformers could ever love us by an infinite degree. It's who He is. Verse 17. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Whoa, 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 whoa. Why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart? Maybe we could find another English translation that doesn't say that. (laughs) But they all say that because there's no ambiguity in the Hebrew it's what it says now let's not misunderstand Isaiah is not blaming God for the failure of this generation of the church he's not saying that God has forced anybody to sin they have wandered from God's ways they no longer fear him but the prophet he has has eyes That God has given him. And he always looks more deeply. He looks inside of things. He sees the hidden meaning. And he sees the discipline of God at work in his generation. When we wander from God, that does not put God in a position of helplessness and waiting and hand-wringing and wondering what to do next. If we choose to wander from God, some of us this morning are wandering from God by deliberate choice. I'm really glad you came to church. Now let's think about this. If we choose to wander from God, He may teach us a lesson by handing us over to the power of our sins and hardening us in them so that we find we can't come back to Him. We tell ourselves we can fool around with some pet sin, some darling sin. We tell ourselves that when we feel like it, when we get tired of it, we can just drop it, come back to God, no big deal. Hmm. Does the Bible teach us to think that way? Does the Bible teach us God trivializing thoughts? Sin is a power beyond our control. Jesus said, he who sins is a slave of sin. And when we find our hearts hardened with lethargy and self-pity and even blaming God so that we don't even want to return to Him, what do we do then? And we've all been there. Some of us are there right now. What do we do then? We bow before God and we pray that He will return to us. Do you see that in the verse? Return for the sake of your servants. We are utterly dependent on God. When we have wandered from His ways and no longer fear Him in any practical sense, our hope is not in ourselves and in our capacity for turning, in our capacity for choosing and repenting. Our hope is in the mercy of God. And so we bow before Him and we say, return to us. Come soften my heart. I am beyond my own remedy. You are my remedy. We need divine intervention. Chapter 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. In other words, O Lord, we need unusual divine intervention. We need a divine intervention event we're thankful for your steady blessings day by day but these are desperate times we're in a desperate condition we need this is what it's saying teaching us to pray this way we need more blessing than we've ever seen before we need the unmistakable descent of God this is how he wants us to pray have you ever been in a worship service Where you became aware that someone had entered the room. And that God was manifesting His presence. And all you could do is do business with Him. God is able to come down and visit us. Not only with His steady blessings, for which we're grateful. But he is able to come down in unusual power. We know this from the Bible. And we know it from history. In 1735, God visited New England, and Jonathan Edwards recorded what he saw. The town of Northampton seemed to be full of the presence of God. It was never so full of love and of joy, and yet so full of distress as it was then. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. It was a time of joy in families on account of salvation being brought to them. Parents rejoicing over their children as born anew. Husbands rejoicing over their wives and wives over their husbands. Our public assemblies, he means our worship services were then beautiful. The congregation in general was from time to time in tears while the word was preached, some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. And he went on. Then about a century later, a Presbyterian minister in Scotland recorded these evidences of God's unusual movement It was a common thing. As soon as the Bible was opened, after the preliminary services, and just as the reader began, and here the minister stopped. This was an address in Glasgow in 1840. He broke off his address and he just pointed out that this was not during the sermon. This was just during the reading of the Bible. It was a common thing for great meltings to come upon the hearers. The deepest attention was paid to every word as the sacred verses were slowly and solemnly enunciated. The silent tear might be seen stealing down the rugged but expressive faces turned upon the reader. It was often a stirring sight to witness the multitudes assembling during the dark winter evenings. To trace their progress as they came in all directions across moors and mountains by the torches which they carried to light their way to the places of meeting. The word of the Lord was precious in those days, and personal inconvenience was little thought of when the hungering soul sought to be satisfied. Let me just say something briefly. Sometimes I wonder what we are communicating to God Are we communicating hungering souls, seeking to be satisfied? Many of us come to church late. What are we saying to God? Now, I hasten to say I'm often late to important things. I am no better than anybody else. Okay? But you know, the thought occurs to me, if somebody were to say to me, Ray... I want to meet you at 9 a.m. sharp next Saturday morning at Chickering and Old Hickory because if, if you're there, I, I want to give you $10,000 in cash. I'd be there. I'd be early. Why? So would you. Why? Because we love money. <laughs> Could never get enough money. Free money. Yeah. What God wants to awaken in our hearts is something new. Can't get enough of God. Free God. Yeah! The hungering soul seeks to be satisfied. In what it believes will satisfy it. And one of the unmistakable evidences that God is coming down is when His people satisfy themselves in Him more than in money. We know that God comes down from the Bible. We know that God has come down in history. God is coming down in the world today. We see it around the world. Take China, for example. Chinese Christianity has grown from around 1 million believers in 1950 to somewhere around 80 to 100 million today and in the face of savage persecution. And today, today, as we are here, Chinese Christian leaders are dying under torture. But God is coming down. And there is nothing the government can do to stop him. He's making the mountains of human opposition quake at his presence and through the gospel he is turning enemies into worshippers. It's happening. Now listen, it is very important for us to understand that much of the American Christianity we take for granted is subnormal. Over the last 20 years or so, we have seen zero net church growth in North America. Zero. There are churches that are growing with conversions under the power of God, but taken as a whole, American Christianity today, in our generation, this is our moment, we are responsible now, American Christianity today is drifting into inconsequentiality. And yet we're satisfied with our condition. We feel little urgency and longing. We're hardly aware of our mediocrity. We have lost the vision of the prophets and the apostles. We have forgotten that to whom much is given, much is required. What should we do? We must choose to accept the burden the inconvenient, disturbing, question-provoking, ego-humbling, prayer- stimulating, church-changing, prophetic burden that the glory of Jesus would come down upon us in our generation. Let's embrace the longing Let's live with that longing. Let's pray with it. Let's die with it in our hearts. And as long as we live, let's stay open to God. Verse 3. When you did awesome things we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. What does God's work in the past teach us? Not how we can box Him in, but how we've got to stay open because He does things we're not looking for. He never acts out of character, he never violates his own word. He is always true to himself, but he is never at a loss for new breakthroughs. Think about it, all through the Bible, Israel was cornered at the Red Sea, the Egyptian army was bearing down on them, what happened? The sea opened up, nobody was expecting that. The whole world was stumbling in darkness with no way forward, what happened? The Savior of the world was born in a barn. Nobody was expecting that. We were condemned in our inexcusable guilt without a word of defense. What happened? Our judge endured our penalty on the cross. Nobody was expecting that. He was dead and buried. All the hopeful expectations he'd created were dead and buried. What happened? He rose from the grave, ascended to the Father, began pouring out His Spirit to make His murderers into His friends. Nobody was expecting that. And He is still full of surprises. In my generation, the church of the 1950s and 60s was on the defensive, getting stale, lacking a prophetic voice, and as the 60s progressed, many of us remember it, our nation was tearing itself apart. What happened? God came down. And crazy, long-haired young people all across the country changed the subject. And they began running toward Christ in many thousands of improbable conversions. Nobody was expecting that. And it's time for us to pray again, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and do awesome things we're not looking for. That's the prayer of our generation. Verse 4 From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. This is great. Nobody has ever trusted God too much. Nobody has ever asked God for too much. Nobody has ever asked him for something and God said, Ooh, I'll try. We can never get out ahead of God when we're thinking true thoughts of His greatness and feeling true longings for His power and glory. We will never enlarge our vision of God too greatly. What He is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or think. What we need to do is take our small thoughts of God and measure them by the Bible. And, and 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 stretch our small thoughts of God out to the full measure of biblical revelation and then, then, humbly, prayerfully expect God to be true to Himself. Jesus said, according to your faith, be it done for you. Second half of, first half of verse 5. You made Him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. God does not meet the brilliant one. He doesn't meet the lucky one. He meets the one who is joyfully, humbly, eagerly going along in the simple, ordinary path of obedience. That's where God can be found. Not with a guru on a mountaintop, but right where you are, right where I am. You don't need to run from your life. It's where God is. You don't need to wait for ideal conditions. You and I just need to take our lives and make them into vehicles for remembering God and His ways, and to do it. And, and He says joyfully, "Who joyfully remember you?" That's authenticity. You know, I've been, it's been a while since we said, "Told the Lord, just glad to be here, sir. Just glad to be here, sir." Why don't we do that together now? Let's tell him, okay, together. Just glad to be here, sir. Joyfully remembering you in your ways. But that is an adjustment. Second half of verse 5. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we've been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like, now watch the word like, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Here's the thing, as you and I, I mean beginning right now, as you and I are proceeding into the future, and making decisions about our lives all along the way continually. The the complication is we're not writing on a blank page. Not anymore. The page is already crowded with stains and things crossed out and incomplete erasures and, and misspellings and so on and we're complicated. And Isaiah uses four similes. That's why I pointed out the word like. That's a simile. He four times he, he uses the word like to help us toward um, fuller self-awareness. First, we are all like, he says, an unclean leper. I should warn everyone I meet. Hi, I'm Ray Ortland. I'm leprous. I am unclean with the disease of sin. I might just mess up your life you might want to keep your distance. Secondly, even at our best moments, when we do what's right, we're not as good as we look. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. It's not just our sins that stink. It's our righteousness that stinks. And thirdly, that's why our vitality fades away like a brittle autumn leaf. We're we're easily depleted. We just don't last. We're very weak and easily broken. And fourthly, our iniquities, like the wind, take control of us. They move us in directions we didn't intend, we didn't count on. We find ourselves saying, Whoa, 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 how did I get here? This is who we are. And we're not very good at taking hold of the one who can save us. You and I do not need primarily to be delivered from our enemies, you and I need primarily to be delivered from ourselves. And so. We look to the one and we turn to the, the one whom we have offended. Verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. This this rich and thoughtful and realistic humble way of prayer glorifies God because it expresses our radical dependence upon Him our deep need for Him we are the clay He is the potter we need His touch to redesign us the way He wants us to be in other words think about this clay potter imagery what does it mean? it means that God holds all power over us. We lie in His power. Now does that discourage prayer? Is that realization of the sovereignty of God over us? Is that a disincentive to prayer? Not at all. Why should we pray? Because we are the clay and He is the potter and with the touch of His hand He is able to give us newness and reshape us. Well, we need it again and again. Verse 10. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Now look at this. Look at this. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Now the Jews so long ago re- actually returned to literal ruins there in Jerusalem when they came back from the Babylonian exile. The temple had been burned down. It was a, it was, it was, everything was a mess. And that mattered because Jerusalem represented at that time, in God's plan, represented the government of God on earth but they came back to this depressing scene with memories of how great it had been at one time and so they appeal to God they said Lord we're a mess look what we've been reduced to look at how your cause has suffered it's our fault but your name is upon us can you ignore us? You've put so much into us. You love us so much. You identify with us so closely. You've put your name on us. Will you restrain yourself at this sight? Or will you grant us in our time the unrestrained God? The greatest prayer we can pray in our generation is for God to do His will, for His glory, by His gospel, without restraint. God wants us to pray with that kind of boldness and openness. It's a prayer He loves to hear and is ready to answer. He's the one who gave it to us. God creates newness out of our ruins when we bow before Him and say something like this. Lord, as far as I'm concerned, don't restrain yourself at all. Have your way with me and with us freely and entirely. Just let us be a part of what you're doing today.